Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. Hello everyone, my name is Stefan Miller. I am the host of The Forever Student. It's a show that is focused on providing listeners with the tools and resources to become the best version of themselves. One of the things that I wanted to talk about particularly today is Web3, crypto and NFTs. And I am joined by two fantastic human beings who are going to simplify the concepts as much as possible because I feel that's needed. So Anas, Anush, welcome to The Forever Student. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having us uh, on your podcast, <laughs> even though we're at the Crypto Shakes podcast studio. It's the first time that I feel that we are guests on another podcast. Um, we're normally the hosts of other people on our podcast. But yeah, uh, the Crypto Shakes podcast, Danosh and I launched this last year. Um, he says this better than I do, but we are the leading crypto Web3 podcast in the Middle East. In the world. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. But um, we, frequently, yeah. we frequently now um, speak with private and public organizations delivering consulting, advisory, and a number of other services uh, on all things blockchain, crypto, NFTs, Web3. Um, we recently spoke at the Blockchain World uh, in uh, Abu Dhabi. We had like, about 4,000 people there. We did panels. We did workshops. So we're very much dedicated with this podcast to simplifying crypto for everyday people. Yeah, so it's, it's a true honor to be here, Stefan. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this podcast session. So as Anna said, it's the first time we're guests and it's super exciting. Very excited to have you guys. And I just wanted to get into sort of the nuts and bolts of it and, and starting off with like what got you guys into the world of crypto. Um, actually, maybe before that, maybe talk about how you guys met. Because <laughs> that's a funny story too. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite funny actually. As you can tell by looking at both of us, we are tequila drinkers. <laughs> and uh, we actually, uh, we, we met uh, first time at a place called Arts Club here in Dubai at a tequila tasting. And things got quite heated and me and Anas, uh, you know, fell in love <laughs> in, 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 in a very straight, no. straight way. No homo. <laughs> so so uh, we, you know, we, we just connected really well, had a really good bond and, you know, exchanged numbers. It was very romantic. It sounds a little bit more emotional than maybe it really was. <laughs> Exchange numbers. So anyways, next time we met, uh, it was by accident. We, we, didn't, we didn't go for a second date. So we just, we just met randomly. <laughs> and I, I, said, I said, hey man, how's it going? You know, what are you up to? And then I said, you know, and asked, what do you know about crypto? Because back then it was the bull market. It was early 2021, it's just a year ago. And it was such a bull market. Everyone was talking about crypto in the elevators everywhere. So I was like, what do you know about crypto? And that question in and of itself just, you know, unfolded such a, you know, interesting discussion between us because we've both been uh, hugely interested in crypto since 2016, 17. And we've been investing into it since then. So we were like, wow, at least, at, you know, finally I found someone else that speaks the same language. So yeah, that's pretty much how we met. And how did you get into crypto in 2016? Like what, what was that trigger? Actually, uh, you know, I graduated in 2009 at the height of the financial crisis. And back then I was, I was looking for a job. I, I wanted to get into investment banking. 
uh, which, you know, now I'm so happy I didn't because I realized that that is not for me. But I wanted, back then I wanted to get into investment banking. I wanted to, you know, become a quick millionaire, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, I graduated in 2009 when all the investment banks, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, they were firing people. And I started sending my applications to them. And I think they probably thought I was, you know, I was crazy, you know, trying to get a job when they were firing people. Uh, and I soon realized I was probably not the smartest guy in the, on, <laughs> on the block. So I was like, okay, what can I do differently? I went back to Sweden, started studying again, and I started entrepreneurship. And then I started realizing, you know, something is massively wrong with the financial systems. All the money printing that's happening, you know, this is sooner or later going to explode. And this was back in 2010 when, you know, people were living the good life. So I started to invest into gold and, and, and I started to buy, you know, literally gold bullions, keeping them in vaults in Singapore because I thought, you know, Armageddon was happening and all this money printing would, would lead to a financial bust. Yeah, hyperinflation. Massive hyperinflation. And that didn't really happen. Everything I was, I thought would happen, it, the opposite happened. So the stock market started to rally, you know, massive inflation in, in, in real estate. I even sold my real estate in Sweden back in 2012, and I'm still kicking myself because that would have like appreciated with like 300%, if not more. So I made a lot of mistakes. And in 2013, I came across Bitcoin and I was like, wow, this is such an interesting technology. This really solves all the problems that we are facing in the existing financial systems. And I wanted to get into Bitcoin when it was at 300, and I didn't. I, I literally wanted to go all in, uh, but uh, I chickened out. And in 2016, when I saw that it was really taking off, I was like, okay, damn it, now is the time. So I just, you know, aped in. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's my story. Okay, so before we get into like what Bitcoin is and what aped in even means. Um, <laughs> Define yeah. these yeah, I think I think also, Anas, it would be great to hear sort of your journey into, you know. My, my path was somewhat different from his. Uh, so I... I used to be a practicing attorney. I used to be a lawyer. And uh, for me, I started practicing law in London uh, from 2016 onwards. Um, I didn't actually get into crypto until about 2018. Um, and for me, the real reason I got in was Ethereum. Uh, as a lawyer, when I saw the innovation brought through by smart contracts, which effectively you know, what smart contracts does is it removes a lot of the intermediaries that you would need between two contracting parties, because uh, in effect, you have um, a line of code acting as the contract, right? Um, which self executes automatically, given a, a given number of inputs, right? So think about it like an input and output sort of equation, you put this, it comes out that I saw that as potentially being hugely disruptive to the legal industry and felt I had to explore, you know, what, what, what sort of new technology and new world this could bring forward. And I also maybe thought a little bit uh, that maybe it would completely render the legal industry obsolete. Um, I didn't, I mean, that, that, that isn't necessarily what's going to, I think going to happen because there's, there's a various different layers to legal services. But for me, since then, I've, I've gone in big time, you know, uh, what happened when, so in March, March 2020, when we saw a huge, you know, COVID hit, there was a massive collapse in prices all over the world. I mean, across the stock market, across crypto, 
I went in with everything I had and um, that turned out to be a good decision um, because obviously we had a huge bull run after that point. And for me now, you know, I'm really happy to be dedicating a lot of my time exploring Ethereum. You know, Danosh and I were building a company built on Ethereum, a DAO. Um, I, in many ways, the initial exploration of this legal issue has now become the ultimate thing that I'm exploring because the DAO that we're launching, and we'll talk about this a little later, is now a even more interesting exploration of the legal company, right? The LLC, you know, being sort of brought into this Web3 world in the form of a DAO. Uh, and so it's been a great journey to take that legal experience and bring it into Web3 this way. Amazing. I think there's a few things we need to cover because a DAO is a whole nother mm. ball game, right? Like yeah. something that's extremely uh, potentially complex for like the everyday listener to hear. But let's start off with two things, which is Web3 and crypto. If either of you, whoever can explain it in the simplest way, can give that a go. What is Web3? What is cryptocurrency? Okay, I'll, I'll have a crack. Um, firstly, cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is... A is actually just, so we have to start actually probably with blockchain, right? Because that underpins everything. And in all of our sessions, I always like to describe blockchain as a new legal system for the internet. Now, it, but a conventional definition is that it's, it's just a database that's decentralized. Think of it like, you know, uh, you've got um, a number of, um, uh, an accounting statement, right? And Everybody in, let's say the three of us are on a blockchain. You have an accounting statement. I have an accounting statement. Danosh has one as well. If I write something on that statement, right, because I'm making a, a transaction, I'm sending money to Danosh, you see it as well immediately, right? It's public. And every time any transaction happens, all three of us are immediately updated on what's happening, Okay. So, that, so, that, so, so this is a, a, an innovation in the financial system because what we had before, right, before all of this was a centralized system where we had to trust a bank and their statements as reflecting what's happening in a financial So if I sent money to you, you know, I do it through HSBC or, you know, Mastrek or whatever bank it is, right, what happens is I have to go and check, you know, I have to ask them whether the money has reached you and that could take several days, obviously, because it's on maybe, let's say we're doing this on Swift, the old traditional system, which dates back to 1972, right, which hasn't been updated since, since that time, we'd have to go and, you know, check that that way. And we have no way of verifying that the money actually reached you, like they could have taken that money and we don't even know where the money moves because there's no public ledger. To I, show think, I think you have a very good example <laughs> right now. I, actually, every time I feel like I'm talking about this, I have the same issue with my own company every single time. I'm doing a payment to another country. Either the payment gets stuck or whatever. So for example, this time I had forgotten like the first three letters of the bank account number that I was transferring to. So I had to amend the Swift message. So I had to contact my bank, say, can you please add these three letters to the bank account number? And this has been 10 days now. And the, and the receiving party are saying, we still haven't received them. The, the money is reflecting, but it's still like locked. We cannot access the money in our accounts. So I've sent now a tracer, which is another uh, kind of application to my bank. And I, and I contacted them like a few days ago. I was like, 
I sent this tracer, I paid for it. It's been a few days, what's happening? They're like, it's not that easy, it takes time. So, you know, this is all legacy problems. Like this is problems that we should not have in the modern day. You know, you should be able to transact immediately without these barriers. And that's what blockchain solves for. It's everything happening in the moment and everything is traceable. Now I can go online and check where my payment is right now and where it has been sent and where it has, where it has gone from there. So this is, I, I mean, that's one of the biggest things that blockchain solves for. It removes that centralized trust, that central entity that kind of is, it's outdated in my, in my opinion. Why did you, why did you guys think that the process of like updating these systems has taken such a long time? So like complications that we all face with, with banks, transferring money, transferring funds, there's got to be, and now there is a more efficient way to do it. But why did you think it takes so long? Legacy systems. So with my experience in law, law changes over the the way that law catches up is always really slow with technology. And that also informs the banking system, right? So how does banking systems really work? It's sort of, it's engineered by the central banks and the central banks are connected to democratic or government, right? Centralized systems who need to pass legislation in order to give effect to a system to become more normalized for the rest of society. So a central bank in you know, the United Kingdom, for example, the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve in the United States, they can't update their systems without Congress or Parliament having passed the relevant laws to let them do that. Now, there's also a lot of lobbying interests that will prevent this, right? Think about a central bank deciding on its own accord to adopt Bitcoin as a national currency, like, for example, El, El Salvador, right? That's a very significant step. You know, everybody's on the legacy system. They have to all be on board into the new system, and they might not fully understand how that works, right? But at the same time, the existing interests, the banks, the shareholders who own the banking companies, right, which are major hedge funds, they're high net worth individuals, they're not going to be okay with a government saying, guys, banks are going to the gutter. We're going to go full blockchain, right? This is, this is the, the key issue, I think, in my view. It comes down to legislation. But we are seeing that change now slowly, right? Stablecoin legislation is in Congress. Uh, same in the Bank of England. Here in the Middle East in Dubai, you know, a central bank has passed laws in favor of crypto saying that it's money's worth, it's a valid form of assets you can own. Legislation moves slowly. And, but over time, I expect in the next five to 10 years, we will see a progression towards a blockchain-based financial system. Yeah, I, I mean, I would describe trying to try, the thing is, the reason why it hasn't existed previously is because there hasn't really been any great solution or alternative where people would be able to implement it globally at once. With Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, it's almost like, because it's decentralized, it's almost like, you know, the coronavirus. It spreads like a wildfire and you can't really stop it because it is decentralized. You you can stop it in one country, but then it's still going to exist in other countries. So in order to stop it, you need to stop it in all countries at the same time. And there's never, that's never going to happen because you're never going to have those concerted efforts to stop it because there's always going to be countries that want to take advantage of other countries not taking advantage from it. 
Um, so yeah, I think that's that's the reason. And going into crypto a bit more, crypto maybe particularly Bitcoin. Um, you 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 touched on it a little bit, but can you dive a bit deeper into what it is and how it's currently being used? Yeah, sure. So so Bitcoin, you know, was uh, came as a, as a, as a solution to the financial crisis in two thousand nine. The first bit was blocked, I believe, in two thousand nine February, and you know from then it was always seen as a replacement of money so if you look at you know what makes money money uh, it's a, a few found you know few foundational things one is it's divisible it's portable it's durable uh, and and a few other factors that that makes money what it is and bitcoin really ticks all of those boxes the only thing bitcoin really doesn't have which money has right now is acceptability so acceptability of Bitcoin is something that you know is around adoption. Once Bitcoin start to get adopted globally around the world, you will see you know we, we're seeing it in, in some countries already. You know you can pay you know in El Salvador for example, you can you can go to Starbucks and pay with Bitcoin. You can buy your McDonald's burgers with a Bitcoin, uh, and it's divisible. You, you can you don't need to pay one full Bitcoin to buy. You know, a burger that will make sense. You can pay a fraction uh, of a Bitcoin. So all these factors uh, are playing playing their part, and you see all these companies now building out the infrastructure that underpin how we're going to be using cryptocurrencies in the future. Uh, so it's just a matter of time before you see you know adaptation uh, in in other countries. And I I see you know the UAE in this region as being at the forefront of this. I want to add a little bit more about why Bitcoin is philosophically so important after the financial crisis. So when you have, so why do people buy gold? Just like Danosh, actually, one of the things that we connected on was I also was a big gold buyer. I also have a lot of silver. I still have it, actually. I haven't sold it. Um, it was probably not the best thing to do in, in hindsight. But why did, I, why did we buy gold when come when, when a government is printing money. If you go back to uh, any period in history, um, the, this has actually been written very, very well in Ray Dalio's new book. But um, every country has a cycle where you have a period of prosperity, right? Because the Roman Empire or the Greeks, um, the French, uh, you know, the Dutch, Mark, all, I'm, I'm talking about all kinds of throughout history, right? Uh, England, America, always when an empire is sort of established, normally the empire is built on a strong currency backed by gold originally. In China, it was backed by silver, right? And what normally happens across time is governments look to expand. They want to build out their empire and um, they need to fund militaries to do that. When that happens, and this is again a cycle, as I love this about Ray Dalio, how he captures it across history. What every government has done is eventually reduce the gold backing of their currency, right? And we saw this, um, you know, for example, if we go back to more, most, more recent history, in 1971, uh, Nixon took gold, I mean, took the dollar off the gold standard, right? Um, when that happened, um, what happened there was, he had to do this to fund Vietnam, right? The, Vietnamese, the, the Vietnam War. T to do that, he, he had to print lots of money to do that, right? Um, to fund the, the military, 
he wasn't going to be able to do that with gold continuing to back the currency because then the, then the price of that war would have gone up significantly. So what, 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 what Bitcoin looks to solve is this precise issue, right? The problem there being that Bitcoin's limited to 21 million Bitcoins, meaning nobody can print it. A government, because it's decentralized as well, gov- no, no, no existing authority has control over this. Bitcoin in, in, in many ways was created to, uh, as a currency for the people, so to speak, as Satoshi Nakamoto, the founder, um, his, his initial kind of idea around that. Um, and, and as a way to be a hedge to inflation, just like gold, right? But a digital form of gold. And I think that's why since 2020, because of the massive amounts of money that was printed by the Federal Reserve, right? And I think we, I, I cited this earlier that, you know, the amount of M2, M1 supply has gone up significantly, meaning the Federal Reserve printed more money in 2020 and 2021 than the entire history of the existence of the US dollar. People were scared significantly about this, right? This is exactly what, what got you buying gold in 2009. People are buying Bitcoin now because they are afraid that the value of their money will go to zero. Uh, and so w- the, the way they believe they can protect their wealth now is by being or having exposure to an asset that is limited in supply. So why did the U.S. print so much money last year? It all started back in 2009 uh, when they started to print money to basically solve the financial crisis. So what they, what they were trying to do is by, by injecting money into the, into the financial system, not just financial systems, the, all, all, uh, the whole U.S. system, the whole U.S. economy, they wanted to stimulate the economic wheels that has kind of slowed down, give people money to spend, give companies uh, primarily money to spend, give investment managers money to spend to keep the financial wheels rolling. Now, the problem is that as these financial wheels continue to roll, you're going to start to see inflation. Now, the problem in the U.S. is that a lot of these companies are not in great shape right now. A lot of them have debt. Uh, A lot of them are, you know, just on the brink of, of breaking down. And in order to continue to keep the system artificially going, it's almost like keeping someone on life support. So they have to continue pumping this money in because if they don't, if they start to increase the interest rates, like they've been signaling, what's eventually going to happen is the cost of money is going to go up and the cost of doing business is going to go up and a lot of companies are going to fail. Mm. And if they're going to fail, it's going to be like a big house of cards just coming down, crashing down. And when that happens, you know, you know, I, I can't even dare to say what's going to be the, the end results of that. So yeah, the money printed by the Federal Reserve, right, is money that can then be loaned out to the banks, as in, you know, this, this, the big banks around in the US or in England, all over the world, uh, so that they can loan to businesses, right? And the interest rates are kept low, so that businesses are incentivized to take out loans and grow. So that's a very good point. That's a very, very good point. So it's not just the U.S. economy failing if U.S. fails. It's the whole global economy because everyone is dependent on the U.S. dollar. Yeah, exactly. What do you guys envision is going to happen, both from a fiat currency side, from a global economy side, and from the role that crypto Mm. is going to play in that? 
This is a very good question. Uh, Ray Dalio, I, I always like to defer to his views on some of this. Normally what happens is um, uh, when you have this kind of situation, throughout history, this has usually led to a war, which is not the ideal thing. So for example, in Roman times, you had the collapse of the Roman Empire, right? Um, we had World War II after rampant you know, inflation in Germany because of the serious unrest. Same thing happened in France. The French Revolution was a result of hyperinflation happening in France. So if we get hyperinflation in the currency, we probably will have serious unrest in the United States, serious unrest across Europe, um, and it would probably lead to some kind of significant change in the financial system. Normally what happens is you have that unrest and then things go to zero and we start anew with a gold back system. In this case, perhaps, you know, the thing is now we don't live in those times. And what's interesting about right now is that inflation hasn't happened in the same way because the money supply has gone up on, on the banking level. What that's led to is asset appreciation. So this is why we're seeing crypto go up, assets like stock, the stock market, real estate, that's all gone up because uh, there's, there's something in uh, economic theory called the Cantillon effect. And that is the money that the printed money is, that the value of printed money is given to the first person who spends it. So the, the, the first people who are getting access to money are high net worth individuals, asset holders, you know, other people with access to the top. Then it trickles down, right? And so this is why we've seen inflation, in my view, across assets big time. That is hyperinflation. Some people are saying the hyperinflation has happened, but it's happened in assets. It hasn't happened on the ground because people with lots and lots of money who've had hyperinflation in their assets haven't really needed to bring the liquidity out into the, you know, for the masses, so to speak, right? When, if you have a huge inflation in your house, you're not necessarily selling it and spending it all on things for other people to have. So that doesn't, and that in turn doesn't lead to hyperinflation in, the, in, in, in people's everyday earnings for food and, and beverages and things like that, right? So th that's been important. But what's happened also, which is problematic, is huge inequality in wealth, right? Those who have assets have had a huge increase in their portfolio, whereas those who don't have any assets have seen massive, like no generation at all. And people who have had huge increases as well have also moved, like let's say you're a CEO and you own a big company or you are, you know, shareholders of a major company, you've seen big increases in your assets. You don't necessarily translate that to higher salaries for your staff right? You, you, that's not necessarily, in fact, some people might be cutting staff and reallocating it into machinery, AI, things like that. So all of this is kind of scary because, I, you know, when I think about the French Revolution, it happened as a result of serious inequality. Um, when I think about a lot of major, you know, collapses are a result of serious inequality. For me, I think there's two things. One, the government may have to go into a system to appease the people. And some people are talking about a universal um, basic income, right? And in a way, we've already trialed that with the 
way in, in the UK and the US, people have just been giving money to people, right? We saw that during COVID. People didn't have money. There was you know, no jobs. So immediate checks sent to everyone to kind of help them, yeah. right? We could move into that kind of system yeah. in some way. I, th I, think, I think that's a very likely scenario because as these wealth inequalities increase, I think universal basic income is going to be widely used across different countries. And I think that might be controversial to say, but I really believe that fiat currencies are not going to exist in the next 10 to 15 years. And they're going to be replaced by digital currencies, which currencies, I don't know, whether it's going to be government-backed currencies or other fiat, uh, other digital cryptocurrencies, uh, that, that remains to be seen. But fiat currencies, the US dollar, you're not going to be able to trade or, or buy anything with the US dollar in 10 to 15 years from now. Because the, the, the change is happening so fast and you know, the speed at which things are happening, the speed at which, you know, the metaverse is developing all these things. This is going to help to contribute to that change. What are you guys most excited about when it comes to crypto? I mean, there's several things, right? There's the innovation from a kind of money movement. You know, we, we with ArtsDAO, our company now, we actually settle some of our staff. We settle uh, merchants or a uh, commercial contracts that we're, we've entered into with crypto, it's a lot faster for us to do that than using a traditional bank. Yeah. What, um, what I love about it is it breaks, breaks down the middlemen. You know, it takes yeah. out the banks, the governments, yeah. you know, every single middleman out there. Even when it comes to NFTs, we can go into that in more detail. But it, that also cuts out the middlemen. There's no need for Spotify. There's, I mean, in, in the future, you're going to have decentralized music streaming services. You're going to have decentralized movie streaming services. You're not going to have these central authorities that dictate and take your money away from you and it democratizes uh it democratizes media it democratizes communication democ and and you know it democratizes money and and that's you know one of the key aspects people back in the days if you were if you, if you were in africa in a village you wouldn't be able to get a bank account but now with crypto you can get easily connected to the wider the global financial systems through cryptocurrencies. And what do you guys think? And this is an important question, especially for our listeners. Like, what do you guys think is stopping people from investing into cryptocurrency? Like, for instance, whether it's your parents, whether it's an 18 year old or a 35 year old that has heard about it, but hasn't taken that next step yet. Where do you usually see that barrier? I know education is obviously going to play a massive role, but is there anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, so I think lack of understanding in education is, is, is the key one. But other than that, you know, people are worried about the volatility. So people got into Bitcoin when it was around 50, 55, 60, and they thought now is a great time to get in. And then suddenly, you know, it went down to almost close to 30. So that volatility is not digestible for everyone. You need to have a certain risk appetite. Uh, but also, you need to see where these technologies and, 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 and these uh, currencies are going. Both me and Anas were of the view that this industry is going to grow, it's going to continue to grow rapidly for the next five to 10 years. But by then, you're not going to have the same volatility, you're not going to have the same risk. It's the, you know, the old you know, risk to reward ratio. The higher the risk, the higher the reward. But in my opinion, yes, the risk is high 
on, on the short time frame, but on the longer time frame, I don't see that risk. Yeah. What I'm personally most excited about crypto is uh, is not really about crypto itself, but um, you know, going back to Ethereum, uh, I'm very, very passionate about the kind of worlds and businesses being built on Ethereum. Ethereum is not just a cryptocurrency. It's, you know, some people describe it as a world computer. And, it's and the next internet. Some kind of, yeah, this is, this is the whole point of what I'm talking about with Web3. Um, Web2 was very much about, um, you know, you, you, let's say Instagram or Facebook or any of these traditional um, social media platforms, which are the giants now, you were customers of their um, services. And w when you were a customer, you couldn't really earn anything per se. You didn't own any shares in them. Um, when you posted on their platform, you just earned likes or you got views, right? That's not translatable into necessary economic value for you. Web3, and I, and I like this, I saw this image actually by Jack Butcher, who's a big influencer and thought leader in, in the crypto space. He showed um, Web2 likes 1,000, Web3 Ethereum 1,000, <laughs> right? So the point is um, the content and uh, creative energy that you are pouring into uh, whatever you're doing won't necessarily be translated into likes anymore, but translated into currency earnings, right? So when you build, for example, a wonderful photography business through Web3 and you sell and you get a lot of appreciation, you will sell it and get not likes, but Ethereum, right? Uh, that's, that translates to changing the person, the average person to not being a liability holder anymore in the old Web2 world, but into an asset holder because you now can participate in owning the network, owning parts. So, so think about it this way. When you own Ethereum, it's kind of like, like owning, owning a, a part, part of the, of the internet. internet. Yeah. Owning part of the internet. Imagine, imagine you could invest in the internet, you know, back 20 years ago when, when, when it just came out, well, or 30 years ago, I don't know when, when the internet was started, but imagine you would, you would be able to buy a share of the internet and invest in it back then. Yeah. What do you have any other examples of like businesses that that have already been created on the Ethereum network? Wow, <laughs> like oh like sort of the best or uh, easiest examples to understand. Okay, let's think about traditional banking. Um, banks now you have something called decentralized finance in 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 the crypto world, and this is where a smart contract effectively does the same thing that a bank does, right? So what does a bank do? A bank just takes money. And in some places around the world, you have to now pay money to have them hold your money because of negative interest rates in Europe. Um, you give them money because you don't want to hold them in your kind of mattress, right? Because this makes sense. And the bank offers you negative interest rates, <laughs> safety of the funds. And on top of that, you get, um, you know, you get to spend some of it, right? You can't spend all of it that quickly. You can't withdraw all your money. If you, if you ever try that, try that, try to withdraw all your money from a bank. They're not going to let you do that. Um, but what the bank does, because you, 
The reason why you can't withdraw your money is because the bank takes that money and loans it out to businesses, right? That's the foundation of capitalism. Decentralized finance allows you and me to enter and obtain loans without a centralized authority determining that. So I, the two of us, you can pay me an interest rate directly through this smart contract. And the contract just says money in and money out, right? And so if I put money in and you decide to be part of this contract, I will automatically get an interest rate paid out, which will be locked as part of your contract with me. Normally as well, there will be some element of liquidation as well. If you fail to pay up the interest rates, or if you fail to, let's say, keep, so some, let's say you're using crypto, uh, Bitcoin as a kind of, um, as a collateral, right? And the price of Bitcoin goes down significantly and you don't put up the capital. The borrower is always, it always has to be kept whole. So the contract will effectively liquidate the, uh, sorry, so the lender has to be kept whole, right? So the borrower will be liquidated so that the lender can be kept whole at all times. And this is automatic. In my view, this isn't a perfect solution just yet, but it is still an innovation because it allows you and me to have, if you try to get a loan from a bank right now, it's not easy. It takes a lot of paperwork. Um, it's, it's slow. It's also costly. You have to pay a lot of fees to do this. Mm. Decentralized finance allows you to do this very, very quickly and, for very, and very cheaply um, because there aren't middlemen in there who need to take money, right? It's just a, it's just a smart contract. Yeah. So going back to that African village exa example, previously someone in a village would not even be able to open up a bank account because of the KYC. Now that person can become his own bank. He can take whatever funds he has. If he wants to lend that out and earn an interest on that, it's very easy to do so. That's a massive innovation. So, so that's one innovation. Now, um, what's interesting is, if you look at the crypto world and Ethereum in particular, we're seeing aspects of our old world being replicated into this crypto world. So I just talked about finance and traditional banking, right? Um, but we're also seeing other parts of the economy. So we are now with the NFT boom, seeing kind of, think of DeFi, decentralized finance rep representing Wall Street, right? And um, the NFT boom, kind of representing culture, Hollywood, right? Um, music. So, 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 so now, what, before we were, we were talking about middlemen, right? Middlemen in, in Wall Street were the likes of banks. Who are the middlemen in the creative industries? Well, we've got, you know, movie producers, we've got music houses, you know, uh, record labels. Um, we've got, we have art galleries who all take sort of cuts from creators. The NFT boom and Ethereum smart contracts, all of this has enabled the creator to now go direct to consumer. Now, it's not that easy. I'm not going to say that it's, it's that easy, but if you are a creator who does great work and you build a community, an audience, but I, I think an audience is not the right word, a community. And, and we should talk about this a little more about how we are moving into a world very much focused on communities. If you're an artist and you effectively build a small community, it doesn't even have to be 100,000, 200,000, just 1,000 to 2,000 people who love what you do. You can directly sell whatever you produce to them without having to worry about producers, 
record labels, commissions, commissions, art galleries. This is a huge innovation. And this is what's been the result, which is why the NFT boom has blown up massively this past year. A lot of creators have realized this and gone direct to consumer in that way. Um, I know a photographer, for example, he's, you know, he's pretty, he's a pretty significant photographer, but he basically couldn't sell his work at all. Um, you know, in the old traditional world, um, because there wasn't maybe the appetite for it. But now with the NFTs, he's selling his NFTs directly to consumer. He, he sold them out in like 10 minutes for 0.25 Ethereum. For, I think he had 20 or so. And the reason why people bought it was because they believed in his work, right? They believed that the value of the NFT they were buying his photography would go up because he has a strong brand. He's, he, he's working hard. He's there building out his community, for example, on Twitter and on Instagram. So also now this goes back to this asset liability kind of idea. In the old world, he would have sold his NFT, sorry, his photography, and it would just be a, an empty purchase. You can hang it in your house. That's it, right? But it's still kind of like a liability. You can't really, there's no secondary market for it to, to sell. Now, you and me now, let's say we find this photographer, we really believe in him, we buy his work. The work has value because there's a secondary market for it, perhaps on, you know, on, on OpenSea or Super Rare or whatever. And, um, and uh, with that, you and I can become shareholders in the artist. You know, the artist IPOs himself, you buy his work, we own effectively shares in him by owning his work. He does better. The artwork tends to also do better. Yeah. That's the huge innovation here that I see. And, and one other innovation with, with NFTs is that you as an artist, you will earn royalties on whatever subsequent, subsequent sales you have on those uh, art pieces. So let's say I'm an artist, you buy my art and then you resell it. I mean, look at Picasso. It's a good example, Anna's usually uh, takes. Picasso, you know, back in the days, he might have sold his paintings for $50,000, whatever. But if that painting a few years later is sold for $10 million, he's not getting anything of that. But with NFTs, you can decide your royalty that you will earn on every sale. So on that 10 million, if he would have said, I want a royalty of 10%, he would have made, you know, $1 million. So that's a huge innovation. And that creates, that gives a lot of, you know, financial potential uh, opportunities to all these creators in the creative economy. Yeah, and I suppose in a generational way as well, right? Because it's something that you pass on to 100%. your next of kin, etc. 100%. I think the, I mean, we're all in this world now of, of NFTs and, and it's a fascinating world. It's also the wild, wild west. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a space that's extremely unpredictable in the best possible way. Um, but just to take a step back, what, what are they? And how are they currently revolutionizing different industries? Because the way I see it uh, on an everyday basis is, is from the art side, from the music side, now even in sports, you know, access to athletes, whatever it may be, it's making it so much easier, so much more accessible, but also so much more scalable. But if you could start with kind of what it is, it doesn't have to be an elaborate yeah. definition, but then more on the practicality of things as okay. well. So just to break it down, NFT stands for non-fungible token. Fungible means exchangeable. So if you have a $100 note, I have a $100 note, we want to exchange this with, with each other. Those are fungible. 
Now, something that's non-fungible means it's unique. So one thing that would be unique is, for example, if I have a Mona Lisa painting and you have a Banksy painting, those are unique. Those are not exchangeable. I cannot exchange my Mona Lisa for your Banksy and vice versa. So when it comes to non-fungible tokens, they are essentially Ethereum tokens most of the time uh, on the blockchain, but with either some sort of media attached to it. So it's audio, video, uh, it, can, it can even be, you know, some, some sort of, you know, gaming assets. These are non-fungible tokens. Securities can, to some extent, also be non-fungible tokens, um, but it, it, it depends. But non-fungible means that it's unique. If the asset is unique, uh, it's non-fungible. Yeah, and just to make it very clear, like the way I always explain it to people is, the Mona Lisa example is fantastic, right? Like if you have a fake Mona Lisa in your house, or you have a Mona Lisa on your T-shirt, or on a whatever, that does not hold the same value as the original, right? So whenever yeah. people ask me, like, is it just a JPEG? I'm like, no, it's like the unique JPEG. There's, there's another analysis that I think also helps. And, and this goes back to what I talked about before about the blockchain being, being a new legal system for the internet, right? If you buy a house, and if, if, I, were to, if I were to sell you my house right now, and I would say, hey, you can buy my house, but there's no title deed, right? Would you buy it? No way. Absolutely no way you'd buy a house without a title deed. Why? Because the title deed is a legal document that you can take to a court and say, I own this property, right? It's the same thing in the crypto space or in the NFT space. NFTs are title deeds for digital assets. So I can prove, I don't, it, there isn't a court system in the same way, but the blockchain is kind of like that court system. If I want to contest something, I just view whether this is legally, I say legally, but it's on the blockchain, right? If it's on the blockchain, it means if I own that piece, I own it. I have the right to therefore sell it on OpenSea. If you take a photo of any kind of digital asset, you can't sell it on OpenSea because you don't own it legally on the blockchain like I do. Yeah. What can I do with NFTs? And this is a loaded question, but the reason I'm asking this is when someone asks me, okay, cool. So like, and then what, like, what can I do with it? And then it comes down to the utility of it, right? The usage of it. Could you guys talk maybe a bit more about examples of what that could look like? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of uh, different types of, you know, concepts around NFTs. People use them for various things. One of the uh, obviously biggest use cases is it's an investment vehicle. So a lot of people invest into NFTs because they believe they will appreciate in value. Uh, and it's, it's a little bit like investing into art. So what NFTs has done is has revolutionized the art industry to start with. And there's other industries we will see being revolutionized very soon as well, like the music industry, movie industry. But if we start with the art industry, you know, it has really revolutionized it in a way that the everyday person can now easily invest into it and resell it. <laughs> There's obviously a lot of risks associated with that. So that's not the only use case, but a lot of these projects popping up everywhere, they are talking about, you know, utilities. So what are those utilities? Gary Vee did a pretty cool concept in, the, in, in, in New York, where if you own that specific NFT, you get access to various restaurants, uh, that's, that's the type of utility that you can add to an NFT. 
we we see you know nfts being used uh in in uh, in, in the travel industry if you have a certain nft you get access to certain hotels so it can give you access to certain things. It can give you access to events. Uh, it can give you experiences. So Mike Tyson launched an NFT where you could have one-on-one experience with him, goes to his ranch, do a boxing in the ring with him, sit on the podcast with him. So it opens up a lot of these different avenues for, for creators, but also companies to generate new revenue streams. But I think the big utility, I think, is what I talked about earlier, about being invested in a person um, and the capital appreciation that you can have, right? Uh, it, in my view, the future is very much a future driven by the creator economy, where it isn't companies necessarily that have the loyalties of people, but different types of, um, you know, people who are perhaps, um, that have a, a community around them, or projects that have a community around them. Um, so if you're buying an art piece from somebody, that means you like the art piece and believe in them and you want them to also do to grow, right? So if you buy their piece and you have an asset that can be easily sold later on and it goes up in value, you're rewarded for having sponsored and supported somebody who you believe in, right? But also the, you're also now part of that community. Right. Let's say he has a community of 10,000 people. You buy the NFT. You also have a connection with all the other people within that community who've also bought into that project. Now, they can be people, but they can also be projects. Often what's happening now, we've seen an artist and a team of other people collaborate to create a more, you know, in a way, it's kind of like a company now, you know, in a sense. So the Board Ape Yacht Club, the most famous one, you know, you have the artist collaborating with a team of other people who then launched the Board Ape Yacht Club. It's now the most exclusive NFT community out there. Um, you put it on you as a profile pic and it reflects status. Uh, so the utility in some ways is, 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 there's another element of there. It's sort of like a digital Rolex. You know, it's a form of a flex. People want to flex. Like, let's not dismiss this fact. Maybe it's cringe to some, but you know, it's equally cringe to see in the real world people rolling around in their Rolls Royces, people buying mansions, people throw, showing how many watches they have. People aren't going to stop doing this. It's just the way of the world. The Birkin bag, for example, by Hermes is another example. It's limited in supply. You have to wait a long, you know, two-year waiting list to pick it up. But in the end, you own a bag that is a liability, right? You can't resell it necessarily. But imagine you could... Like what's I think the innovation with the board apes is you buy it, you maybe can enjoy it for a bit, have the clout or whatever it is, get access to the community, grow your your Twitter because of the people who you know other members of the community who who then follow you, and then you can sell it for a profit, right? If you want, many people have sold it for for significant amounts of of, of profit because it's gone from zero point zero five when it was you know minted last year to a floor price now of a hundred or so. And you guys mentioned communities, and I think we should definitely touch on this. Like how are these communities formed? And I think also how do they interact with each other? Because we, when we speak about communities from a traditional sense, it's, it's get togethers, it's physical events, it's whatever else. But now we're talking digital, right? For the most part, at least when it comes to NFTs, how, what does that look like? 
I mean, if you look at communities historically, communities has built civilizations. You know, people have gathered around a certain cause, certain purpose, and moved forward and grown organically. If you look at the Web3 and what's happening, we're seeing that a lot of these creators, a lot of these projects, they are building their communities online. So a lot of these communities are, are being built on Twitter. A lot of them are being built on Discord, even WhatsApp. So what we did, for example, here, here, here in Dubai, because we built our own kind of NFT community, and it started out really, really small. We were just like 10, 15 people interested in NFTs. We were like, oh, cool, there's other people in Dubai that, you know, that are interested in NFTs. Let's meet up. So we, we met up with uh, one, one fellow artist, Crystal Bashara, at her studio. Uh, so she was so kind to host everyone. And we, we started out very simple, very organic. And then as, as things started to, to, you know, the next event, there was 30 people. And the next event, there was 100 people. And then suddenly, 250 people. And we're like, where's all these people coming from, you know, just coming out of the woodworks. So for us, the community building aspect was, you know, it, it was amazing to see that people want to build these communities online, but it's equally important to also have a, a physical aspect to it because people love to see who is behind that name or who is behind that avatar. You know, what's the real face behind that board ape? What's the real face behind that, that guy who owns that certain, you know, uh, JPEG. Crypto punk. But going back to your question again, the community aspect from an online perspective, you know, we lived for the past two years or so, maybe we've been lucky here in Dubai, but in across other parts of the world, there were lockdowns. There were, you know, people were not able to interact on a physical, in a physical sense. So they had to find a way to connect with other people um, and find that human connection in some way. I believe this was what enabled the growth of NFTs significantly. Uh, people found ways to connect over, you know, cartoons, JPEGs, art, music in an online space. Twitter and Discord were most significant about this. but. For those who haven't really experienced it, it's really worth it. You, you go into Twitter, you, you, know, you, you purchase one of these um, NFTs, and all of a sudden, if you, got, you get the right one, you have thousands of people following you and also saying hello to you in your DM, saying, hey, I really love that you joined this community. Um, I'd like to get to know you. And that's been my experience. Uh, I, I, one, of the, one of the things I find every day, every day, my DMs uh, on Twitter is full. And, and it's not full. Okay, I do have some scammy DMs as well. But I actually have a lot of incredible people talking to me um, every single day. They're like, oh, I really love your... So my, both of us, we, we have Clonex as our um, avatars now. And, that, and that's been one of the most bullish NFT projects recently because Artifact, who created them, just got acquired by Nike. And, you know, it's been a hugely incredible moment. Um, Stefan, you're obviously part of our community as well. So you would have seen, you know, me various members within our community own Clonex now. But for me, there are every day I get like 20 to 30 different people with Clonexes 
connecting with me on Twitter, saying hello, saying, hey, how did you get into the Clonex community? Recently, what's interesting about the Clonex community is it's not just about the art, but it's also about what's also built on top of it. So Clonex is building, uh, the artifacts building some kind of metaverse where you, you can use your Clonex potential. We don't know the full details, but there's, they've, they've, they have these so-called so AirPods, which allow you to display your artworks that you've collected in there. And people in, you know, creators who are also in the community are building things that can, because, because it's on Ethereum, it's, it's interoperable, meaning one thing created in one place can be ported to other parts of the Ethereum blockchain. So a friend, of, not a friend, but somebody I connected with in the Clonex community uh, recently, he sent me, this might be funny, but he sent me an ashtray um, that could be displayed in uh, my Clonex uh, space pod, okay? And you might think, okay, what, why? What's the point of that? That's kind of weird or whatever from a physical world perspective. But it's, in my view, I can't help but think that's very generous. He is connecting with me. He's a creator of digital uh, art or digital furniture, for example. And he's voluntarily just sent this to me as a, as a way of saying, hey, check out my work. You can have it for free. I'd love to connect with you and get to know you. And he's never met you face he's to never face. Met him, he's never met me face to face, you know. Um, this is the beauty of, of what I've seen in the digital community uh, around NFTs. And I've seen the same thing. I mean, I've seen real friendships formed through Discord, right? Through Twitter. And it's just been fascinating to watch. I mean, for, for us, it's a bit hard to maybe, you know, grasp and understand that. But if we look at the generations after us, these kids, most of their friends are actually online. They have probably much, many more friends online than offline. And, you know, one of my relatives, he's, he's like 12, 13 years old. When he had a problem recently, he was kind of like talking to his online friends about it and they were really supportive and really helping him out. Exactly. And, and that's the beauty of, of these online communities. And these friends weren't even in the same country. It was like in Turkey and Japan and all different types of places uh, and all different types of ages and backgrounds. So that's the beauty of this, this online community. You'd be surprised at how much support they also give you if you deliver value. Um, for example, I saw in a couple of communities where um, somebody had their um, avatar uh, either stolen or hacked because they didn't take good care of their seed security or whatever, or there was some kind of problem with OpenSea. I've seen communities fund the, the purchase, the buyback of that avatar for the person. Mm -hmm. And they don't know any of those people. These people are using their own money to help somebody, a member of their community, be kept whole, so to speak. Um, in our own community, I believe, so we've built a community of close to, you know, 300 people now. And I've actually seen this the same way. You know, I've seen people in our community um, reach out to me and Dan are saying, hey, there's somebody in the community who's not doing too well. Can we do something to help him? Yeah. Um, you know, there's this artist who's launching their project. Let's buy in and help this person out. My, my, my point is people should not, people who don't like the NFT space don't understand what's happening in there. You know, the incredible amount of equity, I say trust equity in between the people of that community 
and the, 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 the sharing and care that people have for one another because it's like a family in many ways. And I know this might sound kumbaya or whatever, but it isn't. It actually isn't. This, is, this comes down to a fundamental part of being a human. I don't know, just because we are not blood doesn't mean we can't help and support each other if we're part of a community that has been built on trust together. I mean, that's, that's what I think one of the essential parts of being part of community, right? That communities take care of each other and, you know, whatever happens, it's almost like a, a, an extended family in a sense. Yeah, and I've seen that with, I mean, with, with our group, right? NFTs in Dubai. I think it's an incredible group to be a part of. It's, it's also that you get this feeling that we're all in it together. You know, yeah. that it's not, yeah, that's definitely one of the things, but it's also not competitive. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really everyone's looking out for each other. Everyone wants everyone to do well. Everyone wants each other to get a whitelist and to do this and to do that, which is which is extremely refreshing. It's 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 refreshing and it's new because you don't always experience this in other industries or in other parts of society. You know, it's usually like, what are you doing here? Everyone is a bit suspicious to one another. But I think also because the space is so new, everyone wants to help each other out because everyone is kind of trying to find their own way. Yeah, there's no best practices or anything Correct. that we can yeah, follow at yeah. this point, right? When I think I want to touch on one last thing before we go into what you guys are up to, and that is how to purchase one. Like, how do we go about buying an NFT? Um, what are sort of the top line steps? And this is a controversial question in the NFT space. Like, what do you guys look for when you buy an NFT? Mm. So it's, you know, still, I think the infrastructure to buy NFTs is not ideal it still has some certain steps that you have to, you know, uh, loops and hurdles you have to pass before be, being able to buy an NFT. But in order to buy one, first of all, you need Ethereum. Most of the time, you can buy NFTs on other blockchains as well. But the, but the most popularly used one is Ethereum. Now, in order to buy Ethereum, you need to open an account with any crypto exchange like Binance, Kraken, or if you're locally based like BitOasis, CoinMina, etc. You transfer your fiat currencies to that account, exchanges for Ethereum. Once you have your Ethereum in your wallet, you have to then transfer it to a MetaMask wallet. So what is a MetaMask wallet? So this, this, these are the two steps. You first, you first get Ethereum, then you get a MetaMask wallet. MetaMask, you, you, can, you, can, get, you can get it on MetaMask.io. It's also an application you can download on your phone. Uh, it's a completely decentralized wallet, which means that no one has access to that wallet and whichever website that you go onto, that wallet can connect directly on top of that website. So traditionally, you would have to go to a, a website, log in, register, get an account, set up your wallet within that website. But in, in Web3, you have this kind of portable wallet, just like your wallet that you keep in your pocket. But as you travel the web, you bring that wallet, which is just connected as a browser plugin. You connect it and you buy your, your NFT. So in the case of MetaMask, the easiest way is to get the browser plugin, uh, get it set up. It's going to give you a passphrase, which you have to note down. It's like your seed keys, never lose them and don't share them with anyone and don't keep them on your phone and, and, or on your computer. This is in case you would, you would lose access to that wallet. You can always you know, recover it. Set it up. Then you go onto a site like OpenSea. So OpenSea is the, the most well-known you know, NFT marketplace. 
Uh, and once you're on OpenSea and you find the, the tokens, the NFT that you want to buy, just you know, connect your wallet and you, you go through the purchase. You basically click, click purchase, pretty simple. So that's the only kind of hurdle, but the, the MetaMask wallet is key to be able to buy NFTs. And what I usually look for in an NFT project before investing in it is, one is, you know, what are they doing? You know, what's the art that, that they're creating? Uh, but in, in the NFT space, it's less about the art, it's more about the marketing. Uh, you know, something we've seen, I think, you know, marketing is almost 90% of how successful an NFT project will be. There are, however, some projects that have organically grown and become really successful with limited marketing, but that is usually more belongs to the rarity than, than the normal cases. So in terms of the marketing, I would look at, okay, what's the, what's the size of their Discord? Uh, you, know, what's their, you know, what's the size of their, of, of their Twitter account? How engaged are people? How much are they talking about this project? How, well, what's the kind of hype that they have built up? The third thing I look at is, you know, what's the utility? You know, if I buy this NFT, you know, what will they give me in return? And the fifth is, you know, who's the team behind it mm. and what are they building? So what's their track record? So for example, with the Clonexes, I knew that this was a strong team because the team behind it was Artifact and they had already developed a massively successful project with their sneakers, their, you know, their digital sneakers. So I know that now that they're getting into, you know, more type of metaverse ready avatars, they've already done something really well. And the likelihood of them, you know, replicating that is, is really big. So that's why, you know, I was like, let's get into this project. And, and the, the, the last thing I would say is what are they actually building? You know, comes back to the initial thing, you know, what's the NFT, but so there was another drop recently, it's a company called Flues, uh, and they're building you know, a way for content creators to monetize NFTs. And you know, if, if you look into their project, it's pretty interesting. And if you look into the, 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 uh, the, uh, the team behind it, they have a successful track record of building online banks. So with, with all those things, I would say those are ticking my boxes for what makes a successful project. So now they're going to launch the ape token potentially, right? So that's a kind of utility. So you're going to own this and potentially earn some kind of tokenomic related thing that maybe can be used in some kind of way. The Cool Cats, that's one project that we're invested in. Um, they've just dropped, you know, they're going to be dropping their own tokens, which can be used in a game that they're building behind the Cool Cat ecosystem. The game... The tokenomics allows you to purchase goods, digital goods and services in the game itself, right? To me, this is innovative. It's revolutionary stuff. You couldn't do this in the Web2 world, you know? Um, so these are the kind of things that we're very excited about. That's very right? exciting. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Just to, uh, I know we're getting to the end, of, the end of time, but what are you guys currently up to with ArtsDAO? What is a DAO? And then let's go into what? you guys are up to particularly? All right. So a DAO is, a DAO stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. And think about a DAO, let's use uh, an example I always like to use, which is like a vending machine. A vending machine, um, imagine um, you want, you, you, you've got a vending machine and it's stocked with, you know, Coca-Cola, right? It needs electricity and it has cash in it, right? 
Now, um, in the old world, you have to stock it physically. You ha also have to get the bills paid for electricity and someone needs to take the cash out, put it in the bank. Imagine now we turn that into a DAO. Now, what happens is a number of smart contracts are entered into, into this. When the Coke runs out, it sends a signal saying to the supplier, we need more Coke. So we can get more Coke into the, into the vending machine. Electricity bills. Because it's built on crypto, on Ethereum in particular, the cash reserves are used automatically to pay the bills, right? And when it comes to, I mean, you don't, you don't need to take out the cash and put it into a bank account. You just basically have the money transacted on a sort of digital accounting system uh, that allows you to track the ins and the outs. So that's the first part. It's, this is where I'm talking about it being autonomous. It runs autonomously because of all of the different smart contracts in that vending machine. Now imagine now this vending machine is owned between the three of us. We are so-called DAO members, okay? We collectively put up Ethereum to create this vending machine, right? And we equally own it in different shares. Now, because of that, we also have other rights, voting rights. So let's say we decided or a motion was put. Let's say I'm a DAO member. I said to you guys, guys, I think in addition to Coke, we should also sell Sprite. The three of us now could then vote on that motion. And if it was in favor, right, a unanimous vote, or perhaps uh, there was a majority vote, the, the vending machine would then begin to stock Sprite, right? So what this is, in many ways, is a new version of the corporate entity, the LLC. It's a new way for communities to organize, hold assets between themselves. Yeah, and, just and, like, uh, just, sorry. So just like we have decentralized finance, you know, decentralized art, we also now have decentralized organizations. I mean, previously you had a board of directors and they, it was kind of top-down run and they gave all the directives and all the decision-making was coming from the top. Now it's imagine really all the employees are part of the decision-making process. But it's not really employees, just members of the organization. How do people become members of that organization? How does it traditionally work with DAOs? There's two ways. Two ways. Um, um, normally, normally the most famous DAOs like Blizzard DAO, Flamingo DAO, members in a community just contribute ETH. And you can create a DAO um, with a smart contract developer to build out the mechanisms. There are also websites that allow you to do this. Normally, there's two ways. You have either an issue of a token or an NFT. And the NFT represents your um, membership. membership, right? With this NFT, you can also vote um, on things. And so there's, there's a place, uh, there's a website called Snapshot snapshot.org, which is a, a DAO organizational website. And you can, with, you can connect your MetaMask. And if you have the relevant DAO tokens or NFTs, you can participate in every DAO that has registered with Snapshot and partake in the decision-making processes. So they'll have motions coming through mm -hmm. every day. You connect your MetaMask, you vote for this, vote for that. You can sell, obviously, your tokens if you don't want to be part of the DAO anymore. Sell your NFT. So... It's a very revolutionary way of being part of a community. Um, but also what I would like to say about that as well is that DAOs enable a group of people to purchase an assets together. It's better to have a pooled resource than to just try and do things your own way. So what we're doing at ArtsDAO is we've obviously built this community, right, of close to 300 people. Um, and what we've noticed is a lot of people are 
wary of what's happening in the NFT space. It's, it's stressful now for people to keep up with the projects, whitelists. Uh, it's stressful to know what's a scam, what isn't a scam, what's a rug pull, you know, things like that. Also, people want to have exposure to the, the right projects, the blue chips, like the Board of Yacht Club, the CryptoPunks, Art Blocks, things like that. What better way than to create a DAO for this community so that DAO members can each fractionally own a powerful or, or, or strong portfolio of NFT assets? And that's what we're looking to build, where, you know, part of our portfolio, maybe 50% of it will be dominated by blue chip projects for the benefit of DAO members. Remaining 50% will have emerging and seed level projects. What, what ArtsDAO also wants to do, so in addition to being what's called like I like to see this as a, an asset manager for this community, right? So it's, it's a way for people to understand and hold and build wealth in the NFT world. But also it should be a launch pad, kind of like uh, Y Combinator, which is a launch pad for startups. ArtsDAO also wants to become a launch pad for NFT artists and creators and projects. So with the pooled resources that we have, people can come and apply to ArtsDAO to have their project receive an investment and grow. The power of our community is quite interesting because we have 300 people, many of which are senior futurists. They're whales in the NFT Ethereum space. They're CEOs. They are uh, programmers. We have a team. We have an incredible community that can do anything for any kind of major project. So they come to us, we can give them the advice and you know, really grow them and, you know, IPO them into the metaverse so that they become a substantial project. We obviously being DAO members as well would participate in their growth as they go, just like Y Combinator. And then, you know, let's say their project goes up 500%, right? Every member is able, we can sell some of our ownership in that project and every member is rewarded fractionally for having participated in that project. That's super exciting. And what are we looking at in terms of timelines? If, if there's anything else you can share with us. <laughs> so we have some interesting news. Uh, in about uh, six weeks, we're planning to drop our token. It's the ArtStyle token. It's in collaboration with Crystal Bashara, who's a well-renowned NFT artist out of the Middle East. And uh, basically what you will get access to is you, once you buy the token, that token gives you access to the DAO as well. It will be an NFT, by the way. Yes. When, so when, when, when he says token, NFTs are tokens. Non-fungible so, tokens. Yes. Non yeah. So, so, and so Christelle Bashara is creating a, a fine art generative piece, meaning it has elements of the collectible space with rarities, but it's also a fine art piece. And so when you buy that, firstly, you get to own something which goes up in value and, and we believe will be very beautiful. Um, we'll have a, a, that will then entitle you to the, the monies that you have earned, so the, the price of it will probably be about 0.5 ETH. A portion of the funds will be represented as your investment in the DAO. Other portions of the funds will also represent the costs of building the DAO and also costs to, you know, Christelle having produced the art. Um, and there'll be a number of utilities, right? The main utility is obviously the fractional ownership, the DAO membership, that stuff. But we also host events every month. And, and you, you know, you were one of the, you have attended one of our smaller events recently, but most, more recently we had a yacht party for our event, our, our community. We had a huge, uh, you know, get together at uh, the arts club 
you know, there were a hundred people there. We had, you know, lots of nice sort of, we had a presentation there. So, so we are organizing these events on a monthly basis. DAO members will also get to participate in putting these together, voting on them, the social initiatives that we will be doing, the launching of creators, you know, that we want to bring into the world. We'll, you know, we'll allow members to vote on that. Um, so we are creating some kind of democratic process for our community to better ease the pain of dealing with all the stuff happening in the NFT space through, you know, a concerted organization. Yeah. And I just want to highlight one thing is uh, the art pieces that we're creating is 2000 unique art pieces. So, you know, when we talk about generative art, I just want to talk about that very shortly. Generative art is art that is created the moment you press mint. So it's, it's randomly generated with different characteristics and elements. It's usually done with these avatar projects. It's rarely, I haven't seen it been done with fine art. It might have been done, but I haven't seen it. So in, in a way, <clears throat> at least in the Middle East, we are the first ones to create a fine art generative project. And each piece is going to be unique and it's going to be beautiful. And, and what is going to be around is, you know, we're creating these gates all various types of gates with different elements, backgrounds. And, and, and Christelle has done a fantastic job in, 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 in drawing these, uh, these art pieces. And we're really looking forward to, you know, the day of the mint to see what everyone is going to get. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Where can people find out more about, I guess, you guys as individuals and also about ArtsDAO? I think the best way is probably to connect with us right now on Twitter. So it's arts underscore DAO, D-A-O. Um, you can also follow both of us on Twitter. We talk a lot about it. Um, so Ananas at Ananas BRB and The Crypto Shake um, on Twitter. Please also, I mean, check out some of our other players. Uh, so we have Raheem, who's a big uh, sort of uh, thought leader, I'd say, in the NFT space. He talks a lot about uh, community. So Raheem underscore Matab. He talks a lot about what we're doing. Um, and then, of course, Christelle Bashara. So I'd say Atelier underscore Atelier Christelle. underscore Christelle. We can put these in the show notes. Um, we our website is still being developed right now, and so in the in a couple of weeks we'll have a more detailed website, which will detail a lot of our uh, initiatives. We've produced an article that will also be published on Medium that will detail the drop, and so that will be released likely next week. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you guys so much for this. I think it was extremely helpful for me and especially for our listeners. Super, super helpful. And uh, we'll put all the details in the show notes, whether it's uh, stuff around ArtsDAO, around your profiles and, and uh, have people have a look at that. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Thank very you much so much, Stefan. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be on your podcast. It was an honor. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. 